Okay, thanks very much. Um, well, I'm here as a historian, stroke sociologist, stroke gender studies person, and I became those things because I couldn't get a straight job as a historian. So, you know, had I been able to get a nice job in 20th century history, you know, after I'd finished my PhD, I had one for a couple of years, and then I moved uh, to another place, and then where I ended up teaching criminology at University of Ethics because that's where the undergraduates wanted to be, and I was doing crime history, so it wasn't really by design. But it's been incredibly useful having that interdisciplinary range over time. I can now say was was. A, a, a good thing. One of the things it did was help me to get involved with policy. So as I did more with sociology, social policy, criminology, um, I ended up just meeting more um, policy people. I'm going to be talking a bit more about a local project and a grassrootsy project. So I think it will create quite a nice contrast. I've been a policy consultant um, for local authorities and uh, NGOs, mostly working with youth justice, uh, family law, child protection, those kinds of things. Uh, and as part of that, I became a member of a local family justice council, so an active lay member of an ongoing committee. So I, was a, I, I worked with practitioners. So I suppose my focus here is on practitioners, not policymakers. Um, and, th and there's a huge difference, I think. I, I'm involved in a project at the moment, which is called rather blandly positive choices and it's intended to be bland because it's actually quite contentious um, and it's a program for mothers um, disadvantaged mothers which I'll go into in a second about why they're disadvantaged but in places like Lowestoft, Thetford, inner, inner city Ipswich so some of the most deprived wards really um, in the country um, and the thing that they all have in common is that they've had at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three, four, five children removed from them, from the family courts, to uh, permanent adoption. So they are unfit mothers in the, in the historical parlance. Um, obviously that term is not, not used now and that's part of the issue. So the, the project is, is, is aimed at them really, to try and work with them after a court case, after they've had a child removed, to see what could you do, what, what behavioural insight might you apply, to what would need to change in their lives in order for them to be able to keep the next child. So it's a very hands-on, very gritty, very tricky project. I've been involved from the start in, in framing it and getting funding for it, and then I pulled back from it while that was then set up and I was busy doing other things, but I'm back in now to evaluate the programme because it's now up and running. So um, I'm working with a team from Essex, mixed interdisciplinary team, including psychologists, to evaluate the programme. Does it work? So it's a what works programme. Okay, um, let me give you a little bit of background. A, a lot of mothers uh, that I'm talking about here have had are serial cases, if you like. So they have one after another child removed. It's not that they have three children removed at once. It's that they have one, then they get pregnant again, and have pregnant again, and so on, over sometimes over several years. Um, and nobody actually knows in policymaking <coughs> the full extent of this issue. So it has not been addressed at national policy level. So sometimes you find that grassrootsy projects are the ones that are actually highlighting something that is too hot, actually, at a political level. So someone like uh, Louise Casey and the Troubled Families Initiative doesn't go near this issue of serial reproduction of, uh, for, for, the, for the care cases. I think probably because it's too politically sensitive and also because there aren't the stats out there. So that's, that's uh, part of it. Let me just give you some stats. Um, we, did, we did a pilot um, bit of research in Suffolk. I, I'm based in Colchester at the University of Essex, and Ipswich is 17 miles up the road, which is why you know, it's just I was asked to be part of this, uh, this family justice group, but that's why I'm working with Suffolk. 
So in Suffolk, um, in, in, in a 2005 to six, there are about 230 birth parents who appeared before courts whose children were um, going to be removed from them. Pretty, pretty, it was a pretty clear-cut case. Now, of those 230, 40% had had a previous child removed. So this is not, this is not 10%, this is not 15%. 40% of the people appearing had already gone through the process. Um, and uh, you know that's that's quite a lot. And then we found that we did some comparative work, looked around other local authorities. Um, there's uh, some stats here from Berkshire. This is in um, just over a 12-month period from in 2009 to 10. Um, 43 babies had been removed from 30 mothers in Berkshire, which doesn't sound very many. 43 babies, newborns. This is 43 newborns from 30 mothers. But those 30 mothers had had 76 children previously removed. So this is like 100 and over 110 children from uh, from 30 mothers. This is one small local authority, and that was just Reading. Actually, it wasn't the whole. So this, and you, you map this around the country. This is massive, but this is this is an untouched policy area. I think I can possibly claim to be the first person to have written about it as a national problem. I think I called it a national problem with no name or something. Um, and you know, since then, lots of other people have done smaller studies and things like that. But it's, it's been an interesting journey, really. Um, so the project itself, the Positive Choices Project, the name actually was born, came up because we couldn't find a name. Everything we chose was too emotive. You can't anything with, with mothers, anything with reproduction. Any, you know, it was it, it just just too emotive. And, and, and it was one of the, the policy officers, the project managers from Suffolk, who just said, well, we'll just call it positive choices. You know, which nobody likes, but that's what we've ended up with. Um, it's sufficiently bland, as I say, to be under the radar. Um, now, how does the project work? Um, it's not an easy project to set up because no single agency is responsible for birth parents after they've had a child removed. So. They walk out of the court. So the mother of baby P walks out of court. There's nothing for her by a law through, through any agency. If, if no agency is responsible for her, that means nobody's got any money for her. No project, no, no support, no care, no nothing. So, so on the whole, birth parents walk out of court with, with nothing. Um, I mean, there are occasional exceptions. So the aim is to try and set something up um, to, to, to assist and they're not an easy group to assist, to work with, to engage with, because on the whole, they've been through system a hundred times before, often as children themselves. Drug, alcohol problems, um, histories of family violence, domestic violence, abuse, you know, every, every problem going, this, this group have usually got two or three or four of those problems. So they're a hardcore, hard to reach, uh, you know, intractable public policy group. Now the project, project works around attracting volunteers, so, so, so the, the, the mothers are invited to, to take part, in, you know, but it's a voluntary um, uh, process. They work with key workers who put together a bespoke programme for them, because all the pe people's needs are different, so, so on. Um, and it includes, I think contentiously, but quite rightly, the use of long-acting contraception. Now, this is where it becomes a contentious issue for any historian of eugenics or any feminist historian, as you know, indeed I was. Um, um, uh, to, to how, how do you frame a debate around long-acting contraception without sounding like you're calling for the sterilisation of unfit mothers? Right? This, is, this is basically why I wrote a couple of those articles, to get it out of my own system. To say, is it OK to say this? Do we want to be saying these things? It's about saying the unsayable. So uh, a lot of people really hate that article. In fact, History Workshop um, were absolutely split on it. And yeah, the, the reviews were so interesting. People saying, we cannot have this in this journal. It looks like we support this work. <laughs> you know? So it was very interesting. I'm amazed they actually did publish it in the end. Um, 
Anyway, good that they did. Now, I should add on those stats that I gave you that each individual case, each baby that's taken into care from birth or you know, each, each unborn child who's on an at-risk register, and there are, you know, hundreds of them around the country right now, each child will cost about £100,000 just to get adopted. So in the first two years of its life, the child will, will be, a, be a cost. I mean, you know what I mean? £100,000 will be spent in legal fees and adoption fees and so on before you've even started. Now, if you could spend that £100,000 doing something rather different with their mothers or their fathers um, or their, their home environments, this is the aim of the project. It's not about cost-cutting. It's about making better use of you know, eighty to £100,000 each time. So... Um, where do we go? So the way I used history, this is rather a long preamble, so the way I used history in the project um, was around framing the problem, uh, justifying the intervention and evaluating the intervention and I'll just say something very briefly about those things. The way that history helped to frame the problem, um, I think it was a question of language. People, um, policymakers, practitioners on the ground were very frightened, I think, of, of words like sterilisation and eugenics and un, you know, unfit mothers and everything that it conjured up. Many of them were trained as social workers, had done this in their courses and things. Didn't want to be at all associated with anything like that. Many magistrates, we did a few workshops on this, scoping workshops, magistrates, you know, classic magistrate, kind of home counties, um, you know, if 50s, 60s, well-heeled, would come up afterwards and say, quite right, you know, we, we you know, we, we, um, you know, we've often thought that this is the way to go. <laughs> it's like, oh God, you know. <laughs> so again, be careful of what you wish for. They said, no, no, this is not, this is not what we're doing. But um, by changing the language, you change the terms of the debate. So by not talking in those old historical terms and by showing how historical terms have, have moved on, by using, you know, however cheesy, a language of empowerment, uh, a language of empowering birth mothers to make positive choices, it gets you into a different policy sphere. Okay. So changing the language and being part of a debate that changes language is very, very important. Um, because I think by using these, you know, by using new terms, it becomes less evidently oppressive, right? So, and people will, will have debates about this, you know. Is it oppressive to advise marginal mothers, disadvantaged mothers, to use long-acting contraception? By long-acting con contraception, I mean um, three-month implants that uh, buy you three months' time, um, you know, of, 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 of contraceptive safety. I'm not talking about sterilisation. Um, People say it's oppressive to even suggest that people would, would want to do that. But we, uh, the counter-argument would be, has it been just as oppressive in the past to remove two, three, four, five, six, seven of their children, one after another, without doing anything to address the root causes of their, of their social problems? So if you, know, if you want to have an argument about which is more oppressive, um, we, we could do that. So framing the problem by changing language uh, was, was a key part of it um, and that led I think to, to a way of, of justifying the project um, that it wasn't a return to a repressive past it was actually trying to build on a rights-based uh, approach by saying these mothers rights have been neglected these mothers rights uh, are being denied their rights to intimate citizenship their rights to family life are being denied because we're not investing in their ability to parent and we're not building their capacity to parent okay this is about capacity building it's not the mental deficiency act it's about capacity not deficiency all the way so that was that's the justification in terms of how historical approaches have helped to define actual tactics, actual tactics for the project and what, what work is done with the mothers, initially we thought we would try to 
get the mothers or work with the mothers to look at their own personal history. How were they parented? How were their mothers parented? How were their fathers parented? What's, what is it about the history of parenting and family life with them? That they, that, that what is, what's the cycle that they need to break? Um, and we hope to be using more sort of psychodynamic approaches and getting them to work with psychotherapists about you know, their own personal history and personal traumas. When we came to budgeting the thing, that was the first thing to be cut. Very interesting that, that of all the things that that, that was that was that was seen as superfluous, and even I, you know, had to, had to agree that that you know if you if you're going up against housing, uh, educational, <laughs> so all the things that they need, long-term therapy around the, around their own uh, relationships was cut out. I think it's, it's a mistake, but that's the way it goes. So history often gets cut out of the budget, even at the last minute. Um, it seems a luxury, I think. Um, rather sadly, but I think it's you know I play a long game. I think you know we say in the next when we evaluate the project we say it would have been much better if they'd had more you know time to have psychodynamic uh, approaches. And then next time we get we go for a bigger grant, then we build it in next time. So this is a ten-year game I think with this with this one. It's a very slow process to influence policy change because eventually we do want through these series of pilots. There's a Suffolk one, there's one in Brighton, there's one in Hackney, there's one in Lancaster, Manchester. They, they're springing up all over the place. These pilots together, uh, we hope, will change, will change policy and um, practice. Final area I'd say is, is about um, how historian taking a historical approach to the evaluation of the project. And this is something close to my heart now because I'm about to sort of start on that. You need to bring a historical mindset to evaluation. Evaluation of policy. Um, basically depends upon evidence, as we've never heard here. That, you know, we're gathering evidence. Now, who, who gathers evidence par excellence? Well, it's historians, and, why, and historians should have more of a role in evidence-based policy making. Um, however uh, sceptical they, they want to be, need to be sceptical. That's our trading strength. Keep the scepticism, but, um, but uh, be prepared to, I think, engage with things that might work as opposed to things that you know, haven't worked in the past. So bringing historical mindset to evaluation being prepared to accept that modest improvement is better than no improvement at all. And this is the Neustadt and May, you know, decision making for historians from the, the Kennedy School of Government back in the in the in the sixties and seventies. It's a flawed in many ways that book, but it's very interesting history for decision makers. You know, what were the ten top rules for for, for decision makers if you're applying historical approaches? Modest improvement, better than no improvement at all. Don't think you're going to change the world. You know, for these mothers. Being able to uh, you know, get clean, uh, you know, change their partner, maybe you know, the, the modest, modest improvements are going to make a huge difference in their lives. Having access to the child they've lost, for example, small things to huge things to them and to and to the families. And I think finally, I'd also think drawing on real, realist evaluation methods. If you know your Paulson and Tilly, looking at the uh, realist methods um, of, of evaluation rather than say you know randomised controlled trials. But we may talk about that in the in the in the questions. So I was going to end with just thinking about it on the train. Top six skills I think for policy and impact based on my experience and this and this project. And first of all, I'd say. Move out of your chronological comfort zone. Don't stick to your 20-year period of history or your, you know, you, know, you can't, you, it's going to be hopeless. It's going to be too detailed, too fixed on one thing. And actually, it doesn't help you to develop macro explanations for anything. And I think working in social science, that's been a big help for me doing that. You know, big sweep history, as important as these 20-year chunks, which we're still obsessed with. Um, Sorry, a bit ranty. Uh, <laughs> climb down from the moral high ground. I think historians and myself included are very good at, at, at you know, being on the moral high ground when it comes to policy. You know, terrible things have happened in the past, the way people have been treated in the past is all awful. True. 
but what about now? How do you then get your hands dirty and engage with the moral dilemmas of, of, of the present? I think, going back to my opening point, we need to move beyond analysing historical discourse, you know, the construction of people as social problems, to looking at analysing emergent discourses in social policy and indeed contributing to reshaping the language of social policy. So use your analytical language skills, your discursive you know, critiques to critique policy now. Meet project partners halfway is another one, and we've had this, this, this discussion already. You have to meet project partners, whoever they are, select committees, TV people, um, Suffolk County Council, meet them halfway, learn their language, learn the, the, the terms that they use and use them. And within that, you need to build up practical skills, I think, about budgeting. You need to know how to put a project budget together. You need to know, have some basic project management skills. You know, a one-day course on project management will get you a long way, actually. Um, that's a, a very important point. Spend time with practitioners. Spend time on the ground, uh, learning how they, how they work and what their, their challenges are. And I think the final point I'd make, and this really is the final one, is that you know, we, need to, we need to actually uh, become a little bit Whiggish again, um, with, a, with a small w. You, have, you can't engage with policy if you don't believe in progress. Okay? You can't believe in policy if you don't think things can actually uh, you know, change, f improve for the better. Otherwise, you know, what, I, I do think, well, you know, what's the point? So you have to become a rather sceptical teleologist. Uh, you have to believe that you, know, you can't just keep pointing out what hasn't worked in the past if you're not prepared, I think, to say what might work in the future and stick your neck out and drive the agenda a bit more, not just commenting on what, what won't work, but what might work in the future is a, is a bit of a leap, I think. So that will be my final point. Thank you.